everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where South Florida is about to get a whole influx of yeshiva break families starting in, I don't know, today. You guys landing today. And boy, am I happy. I'm going to Arizona. <laughs> Good morning, everybody, and thanks for listening. My name is Miriam L. Lalek, host of That's Life and head of social responsibility at Cross River. You can find me here every Thursday morning. Right after Allison and right before Nachum's live lunch. And yes, next week I am off. I'm heading to Arizona looking forward to a little R&R. Didn't take a break between uh, switching positions between here at the network and my position in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So I am looking forward to a little bit of a break. It should be lovely. And also looking forward to the fact that most people are going to be in South Florida. Somebody actually sent me a text. Hey, Miriam, make your restaurant reservations in South Florida, because I don't know if you've seen that a bunch of, um, shall we say, restaurant restaurant posts or food-related posts regarding South Florida have all told people to make sure to place your, to uh, make your reservations and to be exceedingly patient in terms of that, because obviously every, as you know, every establishment is short-staffed because of the continuation of the pandemic. So not only are you being encouraged to make reservations in restaurants and eateries that wouldn't necessarily otherwise be taking reservations, but they're also asking you to bring your patients with you. So go ahead, make your reservations, enjoy your trip, but take a deep breath because as much as things are over, they are not over yet. So as to be expected, because I... Finished my fortune cookies, and this happens to me when I finish my fortune cookies and I forget to bring in new ones. But um, I'm gonna bring in new ones after the after my vacation. That's my commitment. I'm going to bring in new ones. I have, of course, frankly, a whole bag. And they're sitting on my counter, but they didn't make it into my car so that I could bring with me to the studio. But we'll make progress. We'll make progress. Right now, at least I am here. This show is great. And we have a fabulous guest who's joining me today. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. And I am joined not for the first time, and I am sure not for the last time, by Adira Hulkauer. Adira Hulkauer is chief of the Bioethics Consultation Service at Montefiore Medical Center. She's also assistant professor of epidemiology and population health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. In addition to bioethics consultation, Adira teaches bioethics to the medical students and medical residents. Prior to entering the field of bioethics, Adira was a trial and appellate attorney for the Legal Aid Society, where she represented children in abuse, neglect, and juvenile delinquency cases. She received her JD from the Cordoza School of Law, her master's in bioethics from Columbia University, and missing from her in unbelievable bio is the fact that we were college roommates. Adira, good morning and thank you for joining me. It's weird that I left that out of my bio. Right? I know. Was that I an, don't know what I was thinking. Was that an accident? Totally. Okay. Totally All right. So let's lead with that. Adira might be a bioethicist, but she was also my college roommate, <laughs> which, by the way, is another interview for another day. Because I was going to say, it might be more fun talking about that. <laughs> right. Because in, in that conversation, while there's a lot of interesting information, and I'm sure people are interested in it, it's not a conversation about what it means to be a bioethicist working in a hospital during an active pandemic. But before we even touch that, before we even touch that, I mean, let's go back to your training for a second. You've seen, as an appellate attorney and legal aid, you've seen plenty of challenging, and we'll use that term 
very, very generously, challenging situations. How do how how does what you're facing now or what you have been facing for the last year and a half compare to your your previous experience as uh, in the legal aid society? It's a really um, interesting question. Thank you, and not one that I really thought about in terms of that comparison. I can give you sort of what I would say is sort of the larger comparison of working in the family court, working with families that are um, families that are undergoing at times of trauma, specifically children, to sort of the medical environment and what it's been like in the past and what it is like now during the pandemic. So in the past, uh, when I first became a bioethicist, I thought I wouldn't find that many parallels between the family court in the Bronx and, and Montefiore Medical Center, and the parallels abound. Um, mm. Specifically, what it's like to help people navigate challenging decision-making in times of trauma, in times of fear, in times of uncertainty, sometimes in times of um, health-related barriers and obstacles that exists both in the family court system and in the hospital. And so when I transitioned into the hospital, I actually um, needed more help coming up with the really sort of uh, acclimating to the medical language, Mm. but a lot less support in acclimating to what it was like working with people who were making decisions in spaces of, of, of trauma, of uncertainty, of um, honestly, like losing people that they love. And that is, so those parallels were always there. What's different now is that, well, obviously the scale. Mm. And in addition to the scale, the fact that sort of every single actor is in a space of trauma, right? So if you were in the family court and you came in and you had um, a family that was undergoing separation, if the children were being separated from their parents or there were barriers to reunification, there were people within the system that were in trauma, but not everyone in the system, not the judge, not the lawyers, not all of the individuals that were contributing. Right now, especially almost two full years into, certainly two full years into COVID, but in the United States, let's say almost two full years into when it has really, really announced itself in the U.S., we now have an entire system that is traumatized. We have clinicians, everyone from the bedside nurses, the patient care technicians, the doctors, the administrators, the unit secretaries, the transportation. Then there are so many people that go into making a hospital run, and everyone has either experienced trauma themselves by someone they know and love dying. They've worked in situations for the last two years. Um, I always joke, like, I get a little bit judgy. I'm not going to lie, a tiny bit judgy when I hear, like, the stories of sourdough bread and banana bread. And I think about the people that I work with every day who would have, would, what would they give to have been able to say that they got to perfect their sourdough during a pandemic, right? right? right. These people have not had a day off. And so you have family members and you have patients, but the entire system that's treating them is a system that's been wounded. That is unbelievable. And you're, you're bringing up such an important point. It almost touches on a conversation I had the other night with somebody who's, um, who, who's in education, who is, is a Jewish educator and working in a day school. And I said to him, you know, how does last year compare to this year? And he said, last year we were dealing with everything and running on adrenaline. 
this year we're dealing with everything and we're just exhausted and we've had it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I can only imagine what that's like in a medical center where the people who are making the decisions are still in the throes of it and they're exhausted. They're exhausted. They're physically and emotionally exhausted and they're in it as well. You know, you bring up such an important comparison between your two major life, you know, experiences in terms of profession, being able to be a clear-headed voice outside of a traumatic situation versus there is no one outside of that traumatic situation making decisions. Exactly. It's it's such a crazy I, I listen as somebody who I don't want to say perfected my sourdough, but certainly worked on my bread baking, as we all know, during COVID. I, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it's like or what it was like to be in a medical center in any way, shape or form, working those hours, those days and that level of stress. I can't imagine what it's like. But as a medical ethicist, with all the training that you had and when you went to school for this degree, there ain't no way that there was a class and say how to handle a pandemic. Certainly not. And and uh, I would say, so the director of my bioethics center, Dr. Tia Powell, she was part of the New York, ta- she ran the New York task force on life and the law when they created the first draft of how New York should manage um, issues of rationing during a pandemic. And she, somebody who had literally been thinking about this professionally, I think would say, had no idea what was coming when it came to really sitting down and having these decisions be put before you and say, okay, we now have, we have guidelines, we have ideas, but there's so many different systems that have to work together for all of these pieces to come together to be able to ration care in an ethically sound way. And I, I will tell you, um, this is, this is an interesting thing. So one of my colleagues, Dr. Elizabeth Chung, and my um, previous bioethics fellow who trained under me, who is a fabulous medical student named Pablo Cuertas, both worked on creating a, tr- a ventilator triage protocol for our hospital in 2019. Wow. And we had a focus group, and we all sat around of different focus groups. They went to critical care, emergency medicine, so nursing, and then they bioethics, and we had a focus group, and, the, and we were talking about who would sit on a triage committee. And I remember thinking when I said, of course, you know, bioethics needs a seat at the table. And I, I thought, I came home that day and I thought, well, that'll never be me, right? It'll never happen. And, and six months later, we were looking at that protocol, which thankfully had been written in advance and saying, okay, let's get the names of numbers for people who might sit on that committee. We never wound up rationing ventilators, but and nobody in New York City did, and, and that's kind of, and I'll say this, is I speak not for Montessori, I speak for myself. We didn't ration ventilators, but care was being rationed throughout because we were down on, it's called stuff, staff, and space, <laughs> and there were always going to be issues around how much stuff, stuff I can't even say it now, <laughs> stuff, space, and staff were available. So... You know, rationing occurs on all kinds of levels, certainly every day. But in a pandemic, for someone to say we never went into rationing, I think would be um, a dishonest statement. Can I give you an image of now? Yeah, please. So I was just thinking about this before our call started. Um, In order to get, I can get, I get PCR tested and my rapid, well, it's not rapid, it's just PCR tested at our hospital. So 
it's at the campus that I'm on, it's done in what's called, they're called our like, it's our huge auditorium. Okay. And um, there's a stage, but everything else is sort of flat ground. So before, this, this is where I went for my orientation when I got a job at Montefiore. And it's just chairs lined up and somebody stands on the stage. And an auditorium like anybody could imagine. During COVID, it became our auditorium, our conference rooms during the initial surges were all turned into beds. Literally, you can see curtains separating and numbers on the walls. There were beds everywhere. And right at the beginning of sort of the Omicron emergence, I went to go get a PCR test and I looked around at those curtains and I thought, I really, I thought it was wise we never took them down, Mm. that the oxygen is still hooked up in that room. And I really hope this room never has to get used again for that purpose. And it's not being used now, but our but our beds are filling, our hospital is filled because of the volume of people who are, um, who have contracted Omicron. Um, it's just, it's not that more people are getting sick than they did. It's just, sorry, let me clear that up. It's not that more people are sicker right. than they were during the other surges. It's just that the volume of sick people is larger. So our hospital is full. And we again have people who just have never had a moment to take a breath and to recover. And I know we're not talking that much about the ethical issues. I kind of segued back off of it to sort of the staff, but um, I'm happy to go back there. No, I'm, like. I'm, I'm happy to discuss that also. But the description you're giving me actually reminds me of a number of hospitals in Israel that I've had the opportunity to tour where they're able to take in case of you know, we can call it a traumatic event, but in case of some kind of attack of some sort where the parking garage gets transformed into a triage center and that there are pipes and oxygen ports, I guess is the right word, built into the the walls of um, of the parking garage in order to accommodate a mass um, a mass person, I don't want to use the word casualty, but a mass person event. And and that, that's what you're almost like describing. Like I remember at Shari Tzedek going to visit the space and you're literally like walking into, um, walking into a certain part of the hospital that's still on the exterior. I mean, it's not in the building, it's outside the building. And you look up and there are, there are sprinklers. And it's not sprinklers in case of a fire. It's sprinklers in case somebody needs to be decontaminated. Groups of people need to be con- decontaminated. Decontaminated. So it just, you know, what you're describing to me is a, yeah, we're not taking these down. We hope not to need to use them, just like any other hospital who has secondary plans, emergency plans in case of some kind of horrible event. But we're not going to take them down because we're just, you know, we don't want to use them, but we're going to leave them right there in case we need them. Yeah. I think um, I'm not a one for war metaphors when it comes to medicine. I, I don't love them. Um, but I think the comparison of to a, I've, I've never been um, sort of, I've never been in the Army. I've never had to fight. But the battleground comparison feels pretty apt to me, both in terms of what it, what it looked like at the height of um, the first couple of surges and what hospitals look like, and also what those people who come to work at hospitals, to me, they, they really were soldiers. And I think they're going to have the same um, trauma post 
when hopefully, hopefully, hopefully things quiet down for real, right. that there's going kind of what you described. You know, I, I guess sort of something people can relate to is when you're running around, you're having a big dinner party and you've run around and you've cooked all everything that you need to cook and you have all this energy and you sit down for the first time and then you're like, I'm never going to be able to get up again. Right. Like I'm done. Right. And I think that when there starts to be space to breathe, when there starts to be time for everybody who's gone through this to sit down and, and put their feet up, the trauma of what, the, what they've gone through, that's going to last in our healthcare delivery system the same way it's going to last in our education system, in our like um, food services system right. for a really long time. Right, 100%. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm joined by Adior Holkauer, Chief of the Bioethics Consultation Service at Montefiore Medical Center and Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Adira, when you were facing um, a variety of different ethical questions, medical ethical questions, oh God, talk about words I can't say very quickly, um, before the pandemic, um, I'm sure that there were, ones, there were ones of great severity and great seriousness um, that I'm not asking you to compare of during the pandemic. I just wonder sort of about the, um, the almost like the volume of calls, like the volume of calls for you before the pandemic. How many very serious issues did you face before the pandemic versus how many were you facing at the height of the pandemic? Does that question like, does that make sense? It does make sense, but I, is it okay if I tweak it a tiny bit? Sure, go for it. Um, I don't think that I would measure it in terms of seriousness so much as the subject matter changed. Ah. Um, all of the calls that we get are, are serious, and I know, I know um, that you weren't saying, like, they're light. But right. they, ch- chances are if you're calling ethics, you're calling ethics because there's some major issue in patient care that's happening. Um, for example, we get a lot of like refusals of care, navigating end of life care decision making, um, and they're they're as serious as it can be for each patient. Mm. The nature of the calls and the questions changed for us from Mr. Duncan. I don't know why that name came <laughs> up for me. You know, like Mr. Duncan needs an amputation and he's refusing the amputation, but he really needs it, otherwise he'll die. From a scenario like that to we have eight Mr. Duncans who are going to mm. need to be dialyzed, and we have three nurses right now, not nurse, yeah, three dialysis nurses available, and we have this much fluid that's available for the dialysis machines, and we're anticipating that it's possible that we won't have enough staff or supply. Oh. Right? So the question becomes I would say it was almost a zoom out, and that's one of the things that is sort of the, the calculus that shifts in a crisis goes from what is the best care for this possible patient into this in this moment to more of the public health question of how do we balance our resources to create the best possible care for all of the patients given this moment in time and that is going to look different and and it's really hard i think for people outside of the system because when it's still your mom or your sister, right. it doesn't help if somebody says, but I have to worry about all the moms and all the sisters now, right? That doesn't, it shouldn't make a difference. You should remain the advocate for your loved one, but systems have to change how they can, you know, they have to sort of contract and expand to the, to the urgency and emergence 
emergency of the issues in front of them. And that doesn't always look the same as it would. It never looks the same, I should say, as it would in a non-pandemic, non-public health emergency time. So the questions become questions greater to sort of the public questions of public health versus the question of the individual patient at the bedside. And I, I want to be very careful when I say that because I don't want anybody to hear that and imagine that somebody, any clinician would walk to one patient and say, I don't choose you. I right. choose the person next to you. Mm. That is not what happened. Right. But when you have a finite amount of staff and you have a nurse that literally can't divide themselves and be at bedside A and bedside B at the same time, um, if they can go to bedside B and come back and patient A has passed away. Right. And not because they didn't get good nursing. They were going, you know, they were on that path anyway, but to not be able to be there in that moment for all of the patients, that was, that's the reality of what it's like when you have a public health crisis. Wow. Well, Adira, I mean, I know this is not an accolade that you um, that you appreciate, but you are and you are and were a frontline hero. And I don't think that that even me with as many times as we speak, I don't think I appreciate the gravity and the intensity of your work um, as I do now. And, um, and I, and I think that's also true of, of just lay people like me who, who look at the doctors and the nurses and, and the, the, the janitors and, and everyone else who makes the hospital run and say, you guys are amazing, but there are people who are making very, very serious decisions and helping all those other people. And, and you're part of that. And so is the entire team that you represent. And on behalf of everyone who, <laughs> who's at, who's, who's at Montefiore and who's been, who, who's been the beneficiary of your good judgment, I say thank you. That was hard for me to hear. I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. Thank you. No, thank you for that. And I, and I thank you on behalf of all of the people who are, you know, sort of in my boat of being in some ways like the backup, you know, the backup band or the backup singers or whatever you'd like to say. Right. But, and I'm not trying to, to sort of like shift the compliment away from myself <laughs> But I will tell you that when I walk through the ICUs and I see people's helmets, because they have these shields that were kind of, they look like helmets with a big glass shield right. that are decorated because that was a way of identifying them, but also of bringing some kind of light to the patients. To me, I, I think about the bedside staff and, and all I want to do is just, you know, you know, the way you and I are, Miriam, cook them a good meal and sit <laughs> with them and just say, like, I don't get it, but I recognize you. Right. Well, ain't that the truth? Continued amazing work on behalf of everybody. And you know, usually we just say this by, you know, con I, I, I wish you Hatzlach and your continued great work on behalf of the Jewish people. But frankly, in this case, you're not just helping the Jewish people. You're helping every single person who walks in that door. And, and also, I imagine that there are yous in many, 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 if not every other hospital. And so to the, all the team and all the people who are behind every medical ethical question, medical ethical question <laughs> that exists. All good. Right, exists during or after or pre or post pandemic. I mean, continued good work. Thanks. Thank you. Thank I you truly, truly appreciate it. You've been listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Segal Network. A full afternoon of programming continues. 
Nahum Siegel hosts the live lunch starting in just a few moments. And, of course, we have Throwback Thursday and the Arab Shabbos show hosted by Mark Zomik beginning at 7 p.m. Brought to you by our friends at Kedem. Tomorrow morning, join Nahum as he hosts JMAM starting at 6 a.m. Naomi with a brand-new show starting at 9 a.m. That, of course, is table for two. Avrami hosts Saturday Night Siegel this Matzah Shabbos starting at 9 p.m. And, of course... I, I can't believe I announce it every week, and it's still true. Matis hosts JM Sunday as he has seamlessly since its inception. That's 7 a.m. Sunday morning. I leave you today with a true tribute to everyone who is a frontline hero, to everyone who has just made a difference during this pandemic. It's a throwback moment with Miami Boys Choir and Riffa Enu. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Hashem, Omar Hashem,
você 